Jackson Mystery Stories Collection. Andrew Jackson was born of Scotch Irish parents who had emigrated from Ireland to South Carolina. His father died and his mother moved to North Carolina to be among her own people. Here, a few days after his father's death, in the same year in which England passed the Tea Act, 1767, Andrew was born. Schools were few and poor. In fact, Andrew was too poor himself to do anything but work. He learned far more from the pine woods in which he played than from books. At nine, he was a tall, slender, freckle-faced lad, fond of sports and full of fun and mischief. But woe to the boy that made Andy angry. When thirteen, he learned what war meant, for it was in the days of the Revolution when Colonel Tarleton came along and killed more than a hundred and wounded one hundred fifty of Jackson's neighbors and friends. Among the killed was one of the boy's own brothers. Andrew never forgave the British. At fourteen, he was taken prisoner by the British. Boy, shouted an officer, clean these boots. I will not, replied Jackson. I am a prisoner of war and claim to be treated as such. The officer drew his sword and struck Jackson a blow upon the head and another upon the hand. These blows left scars which Jackson carried to his grave. He was taken a prisoner to Camden, where smallpox killed his remaining brother and left Andrew poor and sickly looking. His mother had come to Camden to nurse her sons. A little later she lost her life in caring for American prisoners on British ships in Charleston Harbor, so Jackson was now an orphan of the Revolution. After the revolutionary times had gone by, Jackson studied law and at the age of twenty was admitted to practice in the courts of the state. But stories of the beautiful country that were coming over the mountains from Tennessee stirred his blood. He longed to go, and in company with nearly a hundred men, women, and children, Jackson set out for the goodly land. They crossed the mountains into East Tennessee, where was the town of Jonesboro, not far from where Governor Seaver lived. Jackson and the others rested a while before taking up their march to Nashville. From Jonesboro to Nashville, they had to look out for Indians. Only once were they troubled. One night, when men, women, and children were resting in their rude tents, Jackson sat at the foot of a tree smoking his corncob pipe. He heard owls hooting nearby. These were Indian signals. A little too natural, thought Jackson. He aroused the people, and silently they marched away. Another party, coming an hour or two later, stopped in the same place and were massacred by, the, by Indians. Arriving in Nashville, Jackson began the practice of law. To reach the court, he sometimes had to ride miles and miles, day after day, through thick forests where the Indians might lie in wait. When, when Tennessee was made a territory, Jackson became district attorney. He had many ups and downs with the bad men of the frontier. Jackson himself had a bad temper, and woe to the man who made him angry. He either got a sound thrashing or had to fight a duel. When Tennessee became a state, Jackson was elected to Congress. A year or so afterward, 1797, he was appointed a United States Senator to fill a vacancy. But such a position did not give him excitement enough, so he resigned the next year and returned to Nashville. He was a frontier judge for a time, then he became a man of business. When the War of 1812 
broke out, there was a call to arms. The British will capture New Orleans. 2,500 frontiersmen rallied to Jackson's call. He was just the man to lead them. They decided to go to New Orleans by water. Down the Cumberland to the Ohio in boats. Down the Ohio to the Mississippi. And down the Mississippi to Natchez. Here they stopped, only to learn that there were no British near. The 2,500 men marched the long, dreary way home. Jackson was the toughest one among them. He could march farther and last longer without food than any of them. The soldiers nicknamed him Old Hickory. Once more he was at home, when he now, where he now was a great man among his friends. About this time, Jackson had a fierce fight with Thomas, Thomas H. Benton and received a pistol shot in the shoulder. Before he was again well, the people who suffered from the Fort Mims massacre were calling loudly for help. Tecumseh stirred up the creeks to murder 500 men, women, and children at this fort in Alabama. 2,500 men answered Jackson's call. They marched south through a barren country. Food was scarce. His army almost starved, threatened to go home. A half-starved soldier saw Jackson sitting under a tree and asked him for something to eat. Looking up, Jackson said, It was always, it has always been a rule with me never to turn away a hungry man. I will cheerfully divide with you. Then he drew from his pocket a few acorns, saying, This is the best and only fare I have. But Jackson soon received reinforcements, and then, in spite of all these drawbacks, he broke the powder, the power of the Creeks in the great battle of Horseshoe Bend on the Tallapoosa River in Alabama. After that, the Indians were only too glad to cease fighting and, and sue for peace. Jackson was hardly home again before President Madison made him a major general and sent him with an army to guard New Orleans from the British after attacking and capturing Pensacola, a Spanish fort, which the English occupied, he hurried his army on to New Orleans. Nothing had been done to defend the city. Jackson immediately declared martial law. He threw himself with all the energy he had into getting New Orleans ready, for the British troops were already landing. The British general had 12,000 veterans fresh from their victory over the great Napoleon. Jackson had only half as many men, but nearly every man was a sharpshooter. They were riflemen from the wilds of Kentucky, Tennessee, and Mississippi, and every man was burning with an ardent desire to fight and defeat the Redcoats. Jackson had not long to wait. On came the British in solid column, with flags flying and drums beating. The fog was breaking away. Behind the breastworks stood the Americans with cannon loaded to the muzzle and with deadly rifles primed for the fight. The cannon were the first to fare, but the redcoats closed up their shattered ranks and moved on. Those lines of red. How splendid and terrible they looked. The Americans gave three cheers. Fair rang out. Fair rang out along the line. The breastworks were instantly a sheet of fair. Along the whole line it blazed and rolled. No human be being could face that fair. The British soldiers broke and fled. Once more they rallied, led by General Pakenham, a relative of the great Duke of Wellington. But who could withstand that fair? Pakenham was slain, and again his troops fled. The battle was over. The British had lost 2,600 men, and the Americans only 21. This was won after peace had been made between England and America. A ship was then hurrying to America with the glad news. Everywhere the people rejoiced greatly over the victory of New Orleans. Jackson was a great 
hero. And wherever he went, crowds followed him and cried out, Long live the victor of New Orleans. For several years, Jackson remained at the head of the army in the south. The Seminole War was fought, and those Indians were compelled to make peace. The people of the United States elected Jackson president in 1828 and re-elected him in 1832 by, by a greater majority than before, showing that he was very popular. President Jackson had a quarrel with the men who were managing the United States Bank. This bank kept the money for the government. He ordered that the money of the government be taken out of this bank and put in different state banks, which were called pet banks. In the Senate of the United States at this time were three men of giant-like ability, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, and John C. Calhoun. They joined together to oppose President Jackson in his fight against the United States Bank. These men made many long and very bitter speeches against the President. The Senate finally passed a resolution blaming President Jackson for taking the money away from the United States Bank. President Jackson was furious. He wrote a protest and sent it to the Senate. The people in the states took sides, and the excitement spread to all parts of the country. In the Senate was another great man, Thomas H. Benton of Missouri. Although Jackson and Benton had once fought a terrible duel in Nashville, they now were good friends. Benton attacked Clay, Webster, and Calhoun in powerful speeches and defended President Jackson in every way he could. At last, after several years, he succeeded in getting the Senate to expunge or take away from their records the resolution blaming President Jackson. There was great rejoicing among Jackson's friends, and Senator Benton was the hero of the day. President Jackson gave a great dinner party in Washington in Benton's honor. For a long time, South Carolina and other southern states had been complaining about the high tariff which Congress had passed. In 1832, South Carolina declared in a state convention that her people should not pay the tariff any longer. She resolved to fight rather than obey the law and pay the tariff. This act of the convention was called nullification nullification. President Jackson was very angry when he heard of this act of South Carolina. He told General Scott to take soldiers and war vessels to Charleston and enforce the law at all hazards. The president published a letter to the people of South Carolina warning them not to nullify law of Congress. These acts made President Jackson very popular at the North, where the people all believed that the president had saved the Union from breaking up. In 1837, his second term as president expired, and he retired from public life after having seen his good friend Martin Van Buren of New York made president. Jackson returned to Tennessee, greatly beloved by the people. There in his home called the Hermitage, he spent the rest of his life. He died in 1845 at the age of 78.